Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York City, its history, its texture, its vibe, its uniqueness. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore that neighborhood's history and its current energy. What makes that New York neighborhood special? And on some shows, uh, like tonight's, we showcase an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us talk about topics as interesting and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in the city. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including those people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We just had the all-borough bike ride this past weekend. We've looked at punk and opera. Those were separate shows, by the way. We've explored our public library systems, our train stations, public art, and even some of our bridges, just to name a few. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcasts. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Spodcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and some other services. Tonight, we are going to have one of our special programs. We're not going to look at a neighborhood, but we're going to look at writers and about how they portrayed New York. The title of this show, number 127, is Hardcover New York, How Some Great Authors Portrayed Life in the City. My only guest tonight is no stranger to Rediscovering New York. He is David Griffin, who's also the program's special consultant. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community when he's not talking about authors and other great things about the city. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David, like me, hosts his own event series. It's called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David has published. His latest blog is called Every Building on Fifth. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square Park right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. And David, how many times have I said it, but I mean it every single time, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. So glad you've joined us tonight. You're muted. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Thanks, Jeff. It's uh, great to be here as always. It's always great to have you. Um, You haven't been on the show in a couple of months and our listenership grows and changes. So I'd like to ask you, Uh, how you got interested uh, mostly in architectural history, which is what we talk about, but in New York City history and things about New York in particular. Well, my my siblings and I were the first actual ever child employees of the New York State Parks Department. Uh, We were costumed interpreters when we were small children at a site called Old Bethpage Village Restoration, which is out on Long Island in Nassau County. And uh, it was one of my, my favorite things to do when I was a kid was to go out there and, and participate in certain festivals and programs that that site would have. We would actually wear uh, clothing that was a replica of the 1850s clothing. And we would demonstrate uh, toys and games and things of that nature. Um, and we actually had the chance uh, several times to stay overnight in some of the old historic houses that make up the, the park. They were, they were sort of there for, as, as places where people could, could spend the night. And I just got very, very interested in the idea of buildings being that old and the, kind of the fact that it was from a different time. And uh, it just was something that really stayed with me, I think, throughout my entire you know, childhood and into adulthood. And then, um, you know, I went to uh, Vassar, as did you, and I, I took a double major in English and in art history. And my focus was on architecture. I, I 
you know, continue to always find that fascinating. And I really feel that, you know, buildings are history in a way that so many other things are not because they can be, you know, 50 years old, they can be 100 years old, they can be 500 years old. They're still used in a sense. You know, they haven't become artifacts. They're not things under bell glass jars. They're things that are there and are expected to kind of repeat a return of, you know, profit or, or serve a function. And that to me is, you know, the essence of history, living history is through architecture. I think there's nothing else that kind of provides that sense of a link with how we have developed who we are and what we're doing uh, more than buildings do. Well, I have two words for that. Here, here, as the English <laughs> would say. Um, David, it's, it's kind of um, fitting tonight that we're going to be talking about uh, authors in New York. And I want to tell our listeners that we've uh, identified uh, five authors that we want to talk about. We may actually make this a part one of a two-part um, uh, program, depending on how the conversation goes. Uh, so I just wanted to give everyone uh, an idea that we may not cover everything that we want to. We usually don't get to doing that, but especially with talking about some authors who have portrayed New York, um, we're actually thinking about, about continuing the conversation in the future. Um, I think it's very fitting that we start off with an author who wrote one of the most quintessential books about New York um, that's kind of historical, but I dare say that it's also on the mark in terms of its verisimilitude and its portrayal of human beings and different kinds of people, rich, working class, jealous, good-hearted, innocent, guilty, those who lived in rich suburbs and the, those who may have lived in the underbelly of an urban experience. And I'm speaking about F. Scott Fitzgerald and his novel, his great novel, uh, The Great Gatsby. Um, yes. Before we talk about individual things about it, um, what, as a whole, in an entirety, what, what made this a quintessential book about life in New York, David? I think the thing that really makes this book magical is the fact that it encapsulates a world without getting bogged down in too many details, actually. I think, you know, people respond to the richness of Gatsby's prose, but it's highly elliptical. It's a, it's a prose of insinuation. Um, there's nothing really in the book that describes New York in concrete terms. Uh, and, you know, obviously this is also a novel of Long Island, very much a novel of Long Island, more so than it is in New York City. But New York City is there. It's at the end of the island. It's the thing that's producing this entire lifestyle. And I remember reading this book, and I, I have read other books from this period. You know, there, there are a few others that, that, that almost do this. But Gatsby is such an incredible book because he goes for something timeless. He doesn't wed you to the period that he's writing about. He weds you to an idea that was very prevalent in the, in the period that he's writing about. And that's that with great wealth comes great irresponsibility. You know what I mean? That's the story of New York in a nutshell, unfortunately. Um, Especially and, new wealth, without mentioning yes. anyone in particular. But <laughs> yes, without mentioning anyone in particular, um, they they are they are their name is Legion, as you know. Uh, but it's sort of it's it's very interesting because you know I I look at that novel and I just think you know if you really just updated a few of the things technologically, and maybe you pushed East Egg and West Egg to East Egg, East Hampton and West Hampton, you could write this novel and, and mm. you know, set it in this time, our time, and it would make just as much sense. A great um, neck and little neck, even. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, to me, you know, even though it does cover uh, Long Island and as well as part of Long Island and the city, um, as we'll talk about later when we talk about another one of our authors, E.B. White, part of the city is very much intertwined into into life of the suburbs and people who live in certain suburbs who uh, yes. the center of their lives is also the city, is also New York City. Yes. Well, there is that wonderful, you know, series of scenes both in Mabel's apartment up on, I believe, 145th Street, and then the scenes at the Plaza Hotel. And possibly the Plaza Hotel is really the only New York City landmark that is really mentioned in The Great Gatsby. Everything else is just sort of there. It's like, oh, well, the train station, the jeweler's shop, the restaurant, the this, the that, the other thing. So um, the Plaza, we're going to, if we get through the material we want to get through tonight, we may not, but, but in future we're going to be talking about the plaza in a different context, but it's interesting to see how that was very much kind of a hallmark, I think, for Fitzgerald of the New York experience. Uh, Fitzgerald was not a native New Yorker, you know, so he stayed at the Plaza Hotel, 
um, you know, many times, you know, during his life. And I think that that was kind of the, the be all end all of the, the New York experience for people who were not rooted in the city. When he shows us the characters converging at the plaza for cocktails, he's suggesting that even though they do live, quote unquote, in New York, they live, quote unquote, on Long Island, this is their, 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 their space. This is their pita tear. This is their neutral area. This is their place where they go, you know, to drink cocktails, get messed up. And it's, it's a very specific environment, actually. Mm -hmm. And during Prohibition, we might add, <laughs> which was also very much a very, very New York. It was Prohibition everywhere, but, but you know, right. New York has such, such a, a rich history of Prohibition. David, one of the, the most memorable things for me about The Great Gatsby and the thing that, that lingers in my head more than the description of any other part of New York, except maybe the plaza, which I love, uh, are the Valley of Ashes. And, you know, he talks about that and he talks about that a number of times in his book. Um, what's the significance of the Valley of Ashes? And, you know, uh, what is it? Where is it? What, what I, was it about? The thing that really was remarkable to me, you know, as I, reading the book, but also, you know, growing older and learning more about New York history was realizing that what he describes, which appears to be fantastical. And you know what? I am going to read the opening quote because it is, it's that good. It deserves to be heard in the context of any discussion of it. So he describes a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the form of houses and chimneys and rising smoke, and finally with a transcendent effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. Occasionally a line of gray cars crawls along an invisible track, gives out a ghastly creak, and comes to rest, and immediately the ash gray men swarm up with leaden spades and stir up an impenetrable cloud, which screens their obscure operations from your sight. Um, the thing that's really remarkable is that at the time that Fitzgerald was writing, this was a real place. This was a, a huge garbage dump, um, was privately owned, and it was a place where the ashes of New York City were delivered. Um, during the time that Gatsby is writing of, which is the 1920s, oil heating was pretty much something that only very wealthy people did. It wasn't, you know, prevalent. People heated buildings by coal. Imagine the skies over New York City heated by coal. The smog must have been absolutely incredible. And every day you had to take out a hamper of the cinders and get rid of them. And so the city was sort of like, there, there wasn't actually enough space in the official New York City dump of the time. And we're talking Staten Island here, kids, uh, for all these ashes. So they started farming them out to private management. And the largest, one of the largest private managers in New York at the time was the company that handled what became the Valley of Ashes, which is Hunts Point in Queens. And- uh, Corona in Queens, Hunts Point, uh, College Point. Uh, Hunts Point is in, is in the Bronx. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, Corona, Corona. And um, so this became this, this like amazing kind of environment. And, you know, Fitzgerald obviously observed it uh, from, you know, driving past it. And, uh, you know, symbolically in the novel, you know, some people have argued that the Valley of Ashes seems to mark the separation between a kind of an older American aristocracy, um, you know, which you could argue the Buchanans represent, represent. Um, you know, basically mendacious people as they are, uh, and the new urban Americans. So we, we have kind of the, the fantasy of aristocratic life on one side, and we have New York City on the other, and in between them, a veil that really separates them and serves as a demarcation is this kind of sense of a, a veil of horror. It's like a, a ring of Dante's Inferno, in fact, that separates the haves from the have-nots, uh, and the rural fantasy, the pastoral fantasy, which is incredibly and increasingly artificial in the context of the novel, from the hellish reality of the city itself in terms of the criminal impulses that are funding all of this. Mm -hmm. So it's like there's no, you, you have to pass through this zone of almost mire, like biblical excrement, in order to get to the world of Gatsby. And I think that, you know, Fitzgerald wants you to, re to remember 
that this is a two-way street. You know, he's describing it, if you see it from Gatsby's to New York, you see it from New York to Gatsby's, you're still seeing it. Mm. I want to stay on the, the topic of the Valley of Ashes in The Great Gatsby, but we need to take a short break. Um, we're going to take a short break, everyone. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin and Hardcover New York, how some great authors portrayed life in the city and the city. We'll be back in a moment. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Discovering New York and our episode in Hardcover New York, how some great authors portrayed life in the city and also New York in general. My guest, my solo guest, is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is also the special consultant for the show, and he's been on many, many times, thankfully. David, continuing our, our discussion about the Valley of Ashes uh, in The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, do you think he included the Valley of Ashes so profoundly only because it portrayed the difference in the portal between different kinds of people? Or was there something very significant about New York and about the city that he that that Fitzgerald also wanted to portray? I think, you know, you're, you're, we're talking about a novel where people realize their dreams only to have them crumble away in front of them. I mean, Gatsby works and works and works and works to kind of create an aristocratic fantasy from which he feels he can then pursue the love of his life, Daisy Buchanan. Um, you know, anybody, it, it, the, the thing that is really remarkable about this book for me is that it's almost sort of like, you know, you look at this and you think, how could you think this work? How can you be this dumb? She's not going to leave leave her husband for you. It doesn't matter. She doesn't love you. She doesn't love him either. She lo- She only loves herself if she loves anybody. She's, you know, the, the quintessential, uh, you know, self-involved narcissist. None of this is going to make any sense, and it's all going to be a disaster. A bigger disaster than I think Gatsby feels. But I think what, what Fitzgerald is sort of saying is that perhaps there's no way to achieve dreams that don't have the danger of failing it's like and and there's a thought on the part of some critics and some writers that he was critiquing the idea of the american dream itself he was saying yes you think that you know you can flee the city and go into this kind of suburban you know archetype and you know what is all of long island but 100 million thousand little gatsby estates all one after the other when you really get down to it a fantasy of like you know living out among the trees and lawns 
uh, it all turns to ashes, I think, in, in Fitzgerald's view. It's, it is a sterile world. It's a world in which things decay. And that wonderful kind of idea about the people with the spades stirring up an impenetrable cloud, which screens their operations from your sight, that is a burial motif. Those are grave mm. symbolically. So I think he's saying that, you know, dreams have come here to die in a sense. And it's paired with that idea of the impenetrable and very fresh, what he calls the green breast of America that the settlers first see is the kind of, you know, the richness of, of this continent. And I think Fitzgerald says that has been lost, that has been spoiled, that has been transformed, that has been turned into artifice, uh, that is now basically an archaic fantasy. And it's one that's destructive and consumes the people that, that fall for it. I mean, Gatsby is dead at the end of the novel. Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> you know, for, I mean, it's, you know, for the, for the 16 year old who happens to be listening to this. Um, the point is. Well, you know, there's, by, uh, by uh, 16, they should have read The Great Gatsby in freshman year in high school, well, so there should be. You'd think, right? But, yeah. um, the, I mean, the phrase ashes to ashes, dust to dust, mm. I think it's also a real tribute to, to Fitzgerald's talent as a novelist, really as an artist. But he's able to take a scene like this that should be completely kind of like, really, you went there? I mean, a valley of ashes, you're going to be that obvious about things. And he makes it this kind of lyrical thing. He doesn't, he introduces something that should be like an anvil dropping on your head. And it, it, it took me many years to see the reality of what he was going for, I think, with that scene and why that was such an important place for him in the context of New York City, in the context of the people that he was writing about. Well, let's talk about the real Valley of Ashes for a moment, because it was part of New York. Uh, that's the, uh, the dump in Corona. Uh, what's the history of the dump in Corona, and, and what happened to it? Well, the Valley of Ashes was a marshland of approximately 3,000 acres that surrounded the mouth of what is called the Flushing River uh, in the north shore of Long Island. And the, the town and portion of Queens called Flushing is named after the river, uh, you know, which flushes out from uh, a number of central vales. Uh, the major flow of the water in the Little River is actually tidal, though. It's not fresh. Primarily, it is an inlet into what is known as Flushing Bay, which is itself an arm of the East River. Now, originally, these marshes were extraordinarily beautiful, of course, and they were also biologically significant. But by the 1920s, when Gatsby was written, they had been entirely contaminated by urban garbage. Um, the marshes were also the final resting place for the ashes that I've mentioned. Um, at that time, as, as I've said, the city's own dumping grounds were insufficient, so it paid private operators, including the Brooklyn Ash Removal Company, which was the one that, that sort of was running Crone at the time, for the privilege of dumping on the property. Um, there was a chief executive officer, John A. quote-unquote Fishhooks McCarthy, which might give you some idea of the gentleman's character, I suppose. And he was uh, reported to have sat under a beach umbrella on an old rocking chair and personally tallied every single truckload as it arrived. The Brooklyn Ash Removal Company also allowed people to scavenge on its dump uh, for items that have been thrown in the ash cans. So they waited for the removal trucks. Uh, uh, ash cans, that's where that, I haven't heard that uh, yeah. phrase in a long time, ash cans. As opposed to trash cans, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so, uh, basically this was like a, a, a huge place for all this, this rubbish to come to rest. And ironically, the very description of the valley in the novel Gatsby, uh, which some critics have said was intended by Fitzgerald as a symbol of an unchanging fate. In other words, he felt the, the Valley of Ashes would never become fertile again. It would remain sterile. That was the, the, the end result of the American dream. Um, but, but Fitzgerald was wrong because Fitzgerald it did become fertile. It did become fertile um, again in many ways. Robert Moses, who was the parks commissioner, was responsive to Fitzgerald's uh, sort of description. And um, he said in 1934, quote, Gatsby remained a good yarn even after the Depression had leveled off the moraine of gold deposited on the North Shore in the delirious 20s. Now, Moses is a person about whom I think a lot of people are very, very rightfully ambivalent. 
but he did open up the uh, the plans for what is now um, Flushing Meadows Park. And um, he did that in a very, you know, kind of roundabout way when he realized he couldn't get the city on board for a park. He couldn't get the city on board for the ashes removal. He could get the city on board for a potential World's Fair, which was held in Flushing Meadows Park. And that is the thing that was the progenitor for the cleaning up of the Valley of Ashes. And if you go out there now, you find that Flushing Meadows Park is actually larger than Central Park. It has two lakes, one of which is for sailboats, um, an art museum, a golf course, a zoo, uh, the National Tennis Center, Center, and the New York Hall of Science. Uh, so plus the remains of the 1963-1964 World's Fair, some of the people are trying to restore some of those buildings. The New York State Pavilion by Philip Johnson in particular is kind of seen as a lost landmark of modernism and may be rejuvenated at some point in the future. But yeah, you go out there now and I think Fitzgerald would be amazed and I, I think he'd be kind of impressed too, in a way. I think he'd be a little bit maybe kind of happy. Mm. <laughs> Well, um, the Valley of Ashes does have a happy ending. Well, it has a happy present. It ho hopefully will never end, you know. Um, what other aspects of New York did Gatsby portray? Um, did what Were portrayed by Fitzgerald and Gatsby? Uh, I mean, I think you, you have a sense of um, Mabel, who is the mistress of Tom Buchanan, uh, is a kept woman. She has an apartment and now uh, a place that I think people would consider Washington Heights. Uh, may have considered during the 60s and 70s Harlem. Um, there's a sense that that's a place that is kind of, when, when he's talking about these buildings when they're relatively new, that it's a, he refers to the apartment building that she lives in as a, um, a, a slab of white wedding cake. And I've checked on Google Streets for the address where Mabel's building may have been, and the buildings there actually aren't as fussy, I think, as he as he describes them well i know I, a building that there's a hotel on 125th and um uh, adam clayton pound boulevard that has yeah. that uh, you know it, it, it's exactly. gone through a number of iterations it's like exactly. 18 stories or something and it, it, it you know when you said a white wedding cake that that that's what that's the image that comes to my mind i think fitzgerald made some assumptions about about places but he also made assumptions about what people were willing to entertain about new york so um, one interesting thing, the, um, the cover of The Great Gatsby, the very famous original cover of Great Gatsby, shows a woman weeping and her tear becomes the green light off the dark of, uh, off Daisy's dark. You know, it's got these luminous eyes. And at the, the very bottom of the cover is this kind of hurricane of colored lights. And those lights refer to a deleted part of the narrative where the characters do not, they go into New York and they don't go to the Plaza Hotel. In the very original draft of The Great Gatsby, uh, Gatsby and Daisy and Tom and Nick go, and Mabel, I, I think Mabel, no, Mace, whoever they are in the very first round, they go to Coney Island. And so when you see the, the famous cover painting, um, which is the first edition cover, the lights on the, the foreground represent Coney Island. And evidently Fitzgerald was a little bit unhappy about that. And so, you know, is there any way, he said to the artist, is there any way we can change this sort of New York City skyline instead? Which, by the way, did not have most of the famous skyscrapers at that point. In 1929, the Chrysler Building hadn't been built. The Empire State Building hadn't been built. Um, there were a lot of tall buildings, there were a lot of very colorful buildings, but the, the Art Deco skyline that we kind of think we associate with Gatsby was non-extant. It didn't, it didn't happen until a few years later. Um, and the, the artist wrote him back and said, Mr. Fitzgerald, I understand you've taken out that chapter. There's nothing set in Coney Island. He says, I speak as a poor artist and a non-New Yorker. For me, all of New York is Coney Island. <laughs> And Fitzgerald said, yeah, you're right, actually, it is. It's, it's Coney Island. It's a, it's a carnival. It's a freak show. It's a masquerade, you know, so, so they kept it. Wow. And, of course, he, he did uh, write about the plaza, and there were several scenes of the plaza. Um, all right, David, we're going to leave Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. We're going to take a short break. 
And when we come back, we're going to speak about a couple of other authors, maybe more than a couple, but at the rate that we're going, maybe only a couple, Mm -hmm. on this episode called Hardcover New York, how some great authors portrayed life in the city and portrayed the city itself. We'll be back in a moment. In a bit. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you a cannabis enthusiast, a cannabis professional, or interested in entering the cannabis space? I'm Johnny Tsunami, and this is Planet Baco Lolo, a less taboo view. On our show, we will discuss the cannabis world through the perspective of various cannabis professionals. Tune in every Thursday evening, Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m., Talk Radio NYC, Planet Baco Lolo, a less taboo view. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Chirag Modi, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Chirag can be reached at 718-210-1167. And support also comes from Jacqueline Hosford Interior Design, specializing in residential and commercial renovation and decorating. Jacqueline can be reached at 347 347- 482-1700. You can like the show on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get back to David and Hardcover New York. Even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our guest on the show is David Griffin. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. David, before we go back to the authors, let's talk about Landmark Branding for a moment. moment. What is Landmark Branding? What do you do? Well, Jeff, Landmark Branding is my own business, which I've had since 2013, where I provide marketing support for uh, developers, real estate brokers, um, designers, architects, and other real estate associated professionals. Uh, I do everything from websites and listings to VIP programming and tours. Uh, I have co-hosted, as you mentioned, for many years. Um, Unfortunately, I've taken a lull due to COVID, but with um, the, um, the talented and fabulous Jennifer Wallace and her husband, um, James Wallace, uh, Room at the Top, which is a very special networking um, 
sort of series of sessions where we tour the historic skyscrapers of New York City, go up as far into them as we can, and then have as much champagne as we can. Um, I'm, you mentioned my blog, Every Building on Fifth. It's available on my website, which is- Quite a blog. It's, it's like page after page. How many buildings do you yes. have on that now? It is, it's been finished for a while. I would like to get back to it post COVID and start uh, sort of revisiting certain places, but it turned out to be over 500 entries and I think about 480 different buildings. And um, it's every single one of them from the Washington Square Arch all the way up to the Harlem Armory, which is this kind of amazing art deco masterpiece that I think very few people know about. Um, well worth the uh, well worth the the, the visit. Um, currently, I've been writing for uh, numerous other magazines. I've been writing for Brownstoner. I've been writing for Real Estate Weekly. I'm very proud to have written another recent article for Dwell for their website on an amazing, um, absolutely amazing house out in Los Angeles, designed by uh, Chris Skeens and Ben Warwis, two very very talented designers. Uh, ben Morris is a designer, Chris Keen is an architect who would work with Frank Gehry. Very, very happy to have a chance to kind of feature that. And uh, yeah, so looking forward to, you know, moving into uh, the fall season of 2021 and then 2022 after that and see what's, what things will happen. I have a, a book project I'm working on, which is uh, on the history of the penthouse as an American architectural type. So fingers crossed that gets greenlit. And uh, we'll see what the, this and the, the rest of this and, and, and the new year bring. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? My website is landmarkbranding.com. Um, the website designer, I'm just going to give a quick shout out to Tommy Fagor at Pound, Pound Soup. Should have been doing that for a, a while, but yeah, great, great designer. And um, my email address is dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. And uh, all the phone number and other relevant information is on the website, as is the link to the blog. Well, the next author I want to talk about, David, is probably not as well known as F. Scott Fitzgerald, and that's Joseph Mitchell. Who was Joseph Mitchell? Joseph Mitchell is really, I think, an incredible figure in the history of New York and the history of New York journalism. He was one of the earliest writers for The New Yorker. He was there during the Harold Ross age. Uh, which is when the New Yorker was first founded. And he and several other really, really remarkable writers, including people like E.B. White, who we may be talking about a little later today, people like Janet Flanner, um, you know, critics of that caliber, created a kind of a house style that was very sort of dry and facts-oriented, but was also light and very elegant and very involving. And Something like elegant I, and involving. It also sounds uh, like a side of New York, too. Yes, exactly. It, it, it had a kind of a terseness to it. It wasn't, it wasn't the accepted newspaper speak of the great papers of London, for example, um, where you know there was a kind of a floweriness of declamation that kind of went into things. This was, this was something that was a little bit more clipped, a little bit more wry. Uh, potentially, it was something a little bit more. I don't know. It was it was it was a type of writing that really seemed to capture a mood and a spirit that was new and that was being engendered by the fact of New York being the place that it is, being the place that it was back then. And um, Joseph Mitchell came to New York City in October of 1929, the day after the stock market crash. He came from a small town in southeastern North Carolina, 21 years old, looking for a job as a newspaper reporter. He found some work as an apprentice crime reporter for a paper that was called uh, The World. Uh, the World is a paper that it no longer exists, but has given its name to the World Series. Didn't, it, didn't a Pulitzer publish The World? I, I think Jacob Pulitzer was yes. the publisher of The World. And it was, it was for a time a very famous building and it had a landmark sky, skyscraper down in Park Row, which no longer exists. And um, it was, so it was a significant place to work. He was a reporter and a feature writer for them and then the Herald Tribune and the World Telegram for eight years. And then he went to the New Yorker and he remained at the New Yorker until his death on May 24th, 1996 at the age of 87. He always had an office at the New Yorker and he went there every single day. Um, so Justin Mitchell was a person who created a kind of a sense of 
sentence and paragraph. Um, the author, Salmon Rushdie, of the Satanic Verses, a famous British author, uh, has called him the buried treasure of American writing. And partly, I think it's his eye for character um, that really kind of brought his writing to life. Uh, Mitchell detailed eccentrics, uh, people of the street. He was someone who was not interested in high society per se. He wasn't interested in great men. He was interested in the people who were really kind of tooling around the edges of what was evolving to be both a very inclusive and yet at the same time a very impersonal metropolis. And I think he read the freedoms of alienation in a way that, you know, we, we, we associate more with people like Andy Warhol, for example, you know, the superstars, um, people who were like the freaks and the outcasts. Uh, but Mitchell wasn't about the kind of glamour that Andy Warhol invested those people with. He was about a kind of quotidian reality, and that's what makes him so special, and that's what makes him so important for this school of writing, both for the New Yorker and I think for American literature as a whole. Um, he talked about people like, for example, Commodore Dutch. This is a guy who for 40 years made his living devoting his life to giving himself an annual ball. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would like to give myself an annual ball. Well, I used to have parties, but you know, we could go there. This is a family <laughs> program. You know. um, <laughs> um, Arthur Samuel Colborn uh, was a gentleman whom who, who Mitchell uh, documented. He devoted his entire life to the abolition of swearing in the city. Now, damn, if that wasn't a lie. Sounds like a fool has fool's errand to me to try to uh, abolish swearing in the city. Um, most famously, uh, Joe Gould. Now, people here probably may have heard of the, there was a film, I believe, made called Joe Gould's Secret. And it's based on a famous essay by Mitchell. Uh, Joe Gould was called Professor Seagull. And um, he would often be seen in Greenwich Village kind of flapping and squawking his way through the, the streets. And he was, he claimed to be writing an oral history of Greenwich Village, and ultimately of New York City, something that he anticipated would be nine times the length of the Bible. Um, spoilers, spoilers. Um, poor uh, Joe Gould evidently never put one single word to paper about this oral history, although he did, to his credit, I think he did actually do a lot of the quote-unquote research and he meant to it just it never happened um and then bizarrely enough uh having written this amazing essay on joe gould uh called joe gould's secret in which he re revealed how he had left behind not a word of this history mitchell himself stopped publishing altogether at the age of 56 and in the subsequent three decades of his life he went into his office as usual at the new yorker on weekdays, apparently working tirelessly on stories, and never submitted another word. Wow. Nothing. And um, there was a very disturbing kind of um, interview that was done with his daughter, which suggested that, in fact, he had been writing, and that the executor of his will, who was, I don't know who the person was, but evidently was someone who was estranged from her and the rest of the family at that time, had confiscated his work and was not releasing it. So there may be this huge cache of work by Mitchell that we just don't know about, uh, or he may be a little bit like what happened to, I think, you know, an author that I really greatly admire and who I would talk about in another New York program, J.D. Salinger, hmm. who went into a kind of a bizarre tailspin after his last published book i think i and you know what i i'm i'm i don't i don't want to play best you know pocket best psychoanalysis here that's not my position it's not what the show is about but it's sort of like it's interesting to, to, to read of these people and wonder you know was there something where they fell into a kind of a depression a state that they just couldn't lift themselves out of where they felt totally you know demoralized or immobilized somehow because it just seems so odd that suddenly after the amount of writing, particularly that someone like Mitchell did, and did with such reverb and such kind of effortlessness that it would all just turn off. So I don't know. I think, there, I suspect there's more of a story there for right. us that we may be able to discover, um, you know, moving forward. Well, David, I'd like to continue our conversation about Joseph Mitchell, but we have to take a short break. Um, 
You're listening to Rediscovering New York, and this episode, Hardcover New York, how some great authors portrayed life in the city. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. everyone. We're back to episode 127 of Rediscovering New York and Hardcover New York. My guest is the amazing and indomitable David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is our solo guest tonight, and he's also the program special consultant. Uh, just uh, an FYI to everyone, uh, we're going to continue this uh, topic on another episode because we're only getting to two of the five authors that we were going to talk about tonight because there's so much to talk about. David, you were right. Like all the time, I'm concerned that we're you know, going to run out of time and not, and, um, and not uh, have enough to talk about. But, but of, course, no way. <laughs> of course we do. Of course we do. Um, Joseph Mitchell, let's talk about a couple of the things he was involved with. What, what was the Gypsy Law Society? Um, that I was kind of hoping you'd tell me a little bit about, but um, I, I do have a, a few kind of notes about this. He, he served several terms on the board of directors of that society. Uh, it was an international organization of students of gypsy life and gypsy language, which was founded in England in 1888. Um, Beaujard, which is a musical comedy based on stories about gypsies by Mitchell, ran for 232 performances on Broadway in 1964 through 1965. Now, something that I want to put out for any international listeners, and particularly for British listeners, is the fact that the use of the word gypsy in the United States and its use in Great Britain are two very different things at this point. Um, Gypsy is a very um, pejorative term in uh, Britain, and it's, uh, it really is quite racist, unfortunately, and it's, something that you know people should shy away from saying and over here because um you know the settlement patterns were different people in the united states still associate gypsies with kind of a romance in a sense uh, you know i mean there's a there's a wonderful little painted wagon in a museum in long island the long island museum of um, history and carriages that was a painted wagon used by the roma people who arrived in this country in the you know 1880s 1890s and i think people here still, they, they hear gypsy and they think magic. They think something wonderful. They think the romance of the road. It's, 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 it's a symbolic thing in the United States still, that word. So I did want to just kind of throw that out there because I know there has been a lot of discussion in Britain recently about, you know, whether or not that's a slur, an ethnic slur. And, and well, it is used as a slur, unfortunately, at times. It is a slur. Um, yeah. pejorative. 
But, um, uh, you know, Stevie Nicks, Gypsy, it's one of the most magical songs, I think, of the 70s period. And, you know, very much something that I think that, that that's the way that Joseph Mitchell is, is, I think, approaching this. He had an appreciation for this. He was sympathetic to people who were in that strata of culture and who were living on the road the way that they that they did, traditionally or otherwise. He was a person who did not judge people because they didn't own property. And that's a rare thing in and of itself in, in American and you know global culture right now. Um, Mitchell had tremendous other interests in other things. He was really interested in the waterfront. That was, I think, his, his favorite place in New York was the waterfront. The people, the birds, the fish, the water, the boats, the entire environment just really captivated him. Um, commercial fishing was something of great interest to him. He was actually one of the founders of the South Street Seaport Museum. He was also one of the original members of the Friends of Cast Iron Architecture, which has then yeah. grew to become the Soho Historic District in New York City, and was one of the first earliest and I think architecturally most significant historic districts in New York City and in the country. And through the um, efforts of that organization, cast iron architecture around the country and then around the world became revalued and people began to protect it in a way. So he, he really has been behind, I think, a lot of the preservation of New York as a city in a way that, you know, very few writers have, whether they, you know, wrote sympathetically about it or not. Um, and it's in, in due to a large part because of him that, that anything of the original waterfront or, or the cast iron architecture of New York, which is really, I think, one of its great glories. It's, it's the largest collection of cast iron architecture in the world. It's the place where cast iron architecture was really fully developed. Uh, Bogardus, um, you know, just, just one amazing building after the other, something like 900 buildings in Soho and Greenwich Village. Uh, Mitchell is the person who was a driving force that preserved that for us. Mm. So I think we really owe him, in addition to his incredible documentary writing, in addition to the uh, the essays he created for the for the New Yorker, that that idea of like creating a kind of a new, very pithy, dry, yet sympathetic kind of approach to a subject, which is very American. Um, he really saved a significant chunk of New York City for us to appreciate. You know now and I, I i have tremendous respect for his uh, his position and uh you know not not just american letters but really in american culture and i think that he's a writer that i'm hoping you know people if they they're listening to this program they haven't heard about joseph mitchell uh, there's an amazing book called up at the old hotel which is a compendium of his best writings it is a very large volume it has numerous essays that he wrote for the new yorker in it um, the hotel in the title of that book is, I believe, I was actually looking for it, Jeff, I told you before, looking a little earlier to see if this was the case. I believe I have read that the hotel that is mentioned is the present um, uh, Greenwich Village Hotel. Um, which Washington is, Square Hotel. Washington Square Hotel, I should say, which is at the north uh, west corner of Washington Square, and which is an amazing, amazing um, Algonquin hotel-like kind of place. Um, great restaurant, great bar. We've met there many times. Uh, and, and had Vassar you know, literary events there, actually. Vassar literary events there. Vassar, it's, uh, I believe the, it's owned and operated, I believe, by Vassar alumna. And uh, I have to say, you know, when the pandemic is over, I really look forward to going back there because that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite places in New York. It is so historic. It is so chic. It is so, it's everything. You know, you can see why Mitchell would document it. You can see why everybody else would fall in love with it. Um, you know, this is not a paid advertisement, by the way. <laughs> but it is, it's a shout out, a shout out to one of, I think, the, the truly great classic New York watering holes of that era and of our own era. So, yeah. You know, David, like every time, the time has just gone by. We've got like a minute or two, but I want to ask you a question about, about Mitchell. Do you think that there was something about New York and about how he related to New York that impacted his his style of writing? I mean, I think it gave New York City gave Mitchell subject matter. 
They gave him things to write about. And I don't know enough about the man to know what his life was like in a small town in North Carolina. But I'm guessing a small town in North Carolina in the 1920s is like, you know, it's like a small town anywhere. After a while, you feel like you know what you're dealing with. Here's the cast of characters. Here's how they will behave. You know, forever and ever, amen, until, you know, something happens or doesn't. And I think Mitchell gravitated towards the edges of New York City, towards its kind of demimonde, towards towards bohemianism, towards people who were sort of the down and out, towards the things that weren't necessarily the highlights of the city, the cultural calendar, if you will, because there was just so much of it. It was a multiplicity of things. And I think mm-hmm. in that sense, he enters the American literary pantheon where you think about people like Whitman, you think about people like Herman Melville, um, you think in some sense of, you know, perhaps poets like Emily Dickinson, whereby there is this kind of multiplicity of America that's going on that they're, they're documenting or they're responding to. You know? mm-hmm. And Dickinson was a person who had a very private life. She had a very curtailed existence. But I feel she reads as an epic. And I think Mitchell observes an American epic, and he picks up the pieces behind it in some very sympathetic and very caring sense. And, uh, you know, there's been, there's been some thought, you know, people have said, uh, you know, this is, Mitchell doesn't read well because, uh, you know, homeless people are not funny and drugs are not funny and this isn't funny. And Mitchell did not find this funny. I think he found it profoundly sympathetic. And I think he held these people up to public observation, not to public ridicule. And he was saying, no, you can't pretend the guy sleeping it off on the street is not somebody. He's somebody. You can't pretend the working girl on the corner isn't somebody. She is somebody. Did she want to be that person? No. So there's the tragic element, I think, to what he's talking about that he doesn't really hit you over the head with either. So anyway, that's Mitchell. All right. That would have been a great uh, uh, launching point to E.B. White about someone who moved to New York, but we'll have to leave that for the next next show. Yes. (laughs) David Griffin, thank you so much. My guest on this program about hardcover New York, how some great authors portrayed life in the city has been David Griffin, David of Landmark Branding. And you can contact David at landmarkbranding.com. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us this evening. Thank Uh, you. If you have questions uh, or comments about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chirag Modi, Mortgage Strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and Jacqueline Hosford, Interior Design. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer this evening is Kyle McLeister, who's also our production assistant. Thank you, Kyle. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. I love making that acknowledgement. Thank you, David. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Coffee Talk XL with Kevin Barbaro. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Take care. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history. 
its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc.